bigger pulpit to spread things out here. Appreciate this opportunity to come and uh, spend this time with you talking about God's Word. And one thing I love about the time we have in the morning here, too, is, is the way the music and the message fit together. And for me, that underscores the fact that this is all about worship. So when you're singing, you're presenting your worship to God just as much as when I will preach to you from this, uh, the book of Zephaniah, and you'll get a chance to react to that, at least internally, and say, wow, isn't God great? Isn't God wonderful? So it's all working together uh, quite well. Let me, let me reinforce something I've done from time to time, too, before we start, and that's that, remember, God's love for you isn't dependent upon your performance. It's not dependent upon your performance. It's consistent all the time. So unlike the way we may have been raised or we may have interacted with our kids at times, if, if I'm doing things well, my parents love me more. If I'm doing things not so well, they love me less. That's not the way that God interacts with us. God's love never changes. So when you sin, he still loves you. When you're doing great before him, he still loves you. So you can rest assured in that this morning, that God's love is constant for you if you're in fact a believer. And as we talk about this this morning, hopefully that'll be an encouragement to you through this book of uh, Zephaniah. Let me ask you a question this morning, though. What's your favorite book of the Bible? Anybody, just call it out. Okay. Didn't hear anybody say Leviticus. No. And I dare say you didn't think in terms of Zephaniah, but one of the reasons I picked uh, John 3.16 to read this morning is uh, because we'll have a verse in this passage in Zephaniah which is called the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. And I've said before that I want you to view the Old Testament to the New Testament as a constant threat of redemption. And of course, in the Old Testament, one of the classic signs of redemptions or stories is the Exodus. God redeeming his people. And all those lead up to the time of the New Testament where redemption is in ours. So the Old Testament and the New Testament fit well together. You've heard the term minor prophets, and that's where Zephaniah is. It's the last 12 books of the Old Testament. The first six of those 12 focus on sin. The second six focus on resolution. And they're minor not because they're less important. They're called minor prophets more because of the, the length of the books. So if you've read a book like Jeremiah, for example, that's fairly long compared to Zephaniah, even though Zephaniah and Jeremiah were contemporaries. So minor prophets, usually the size of the book. Zephaniah is only known from this particular book, just to give you a little bit of background, but he was the great-great-grandson of King Hezekiah and uh, prophesied back about 640 B.C. or thereabouts and was part of reforms that took place. Now, when some of these kings went through reforms like Hezekiah or Josiah, which is where Zephaniah was, the reforms were partial. They were good, but they would come in like with, uh, like with Josiah. His priest found the book of the law. It had been uh, buried someplace or put away, and they weren't even focused on it. And all of a sudden, he finds this book of the law, and I guess the reaction's kind of like, what is this? It's the law. It's what we're supposed to be living by. So they read it to the people, and they had reforms taking place. And the reforms would typically just be focused on the temple. 
So most of the reforming kings would leave the high places to other gods there, so it was kind of a combined approach for them. But, but still, they came back to the Lord when it came to uh, temple worship. Now, Zephaniah, you'll see, is a perfect book for preaching through a book someplace. If you've heard of, uh, for example, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, Lloyd-Jones wrote 14 volumes on the book of Romans, and he would preach for years on just one book. But uh, Zephaniah has three chapters, so it's a lot simpler to preach through, and it's laid out in such a way that, that it's a perfect opportunity because chapter one is all about wrath, chapter two is all about a call to repent, chapter three, the first part is a woe to Jerusalem, and the second part is kind of a global awakening. And that's what you'll see this morning that, that we fit in, because books like this, remember, were written to the people of that day and had meaning for them. Let me give you an example, the book of Revelation. How often do we focus on that? It's only about prophecy. But when John wrote Revelation, he was speaking to the people of his day also because of the things they'd been going through, the things they would go through, as well as through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit speaking to us about things that are out there in the future for us too. So Zephaniah was an important book to the people back then. So if you would uh, turn to Zephaniah 3, and we'll read uh, 14 through 20. Zephaniah 3, 14 to 20, and it's also projected on the screen if you want to follow along. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst. Now this is the one, watch 17. This is the one that's the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. And here's something you may have not thought about or heard before. God will exult over you with loud singing. God's going to sing over you. Isn't that something? Think about that. God's singing over you. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcasts. I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in at the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the people of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that your word is truth. We can believe it. We can trust you. And we commit to that this morning. Even though there are times we'll have doubts, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for Christ, our advocate. We just pray that you would direct our thoughts as we consider this passage this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> now, I really think there's some important verses we want to look at this morning, and what I want to do is give you the application first, and then at the end, I'll give it to you again because I think the application is really important for you to have a good understanding of. First, the risen Christ is our advocate at the Father's right hand. 1 John 
2 says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Christ is your advocate. Number two, the covenant-keeping God has sealed us with the Holy Spirit and holds us in his hands forever. You can underline that word forever. The verse that I want to give you with that is from Ephesians. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Number three, the Holy Spirit lives within us for us. And I'll give you some verses later that talk about the, uh, the listing that I've got, at least, of the functions of the Holy Spirit in your life today. But 1 John 4 talks about that a bit. It says, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. That'll be the application. We'll talk about it again at the end. <clears throat> but there's a gent who came up with some, some thoughts from Isaiah 40 that I want to use this morning that talks about the greatness of God. <clears throat> and I'll use numbers. If you're a mathematician, you'll probably start smiling right away when I use some of these big numbers. But uh, I can't give you the zeros, but he's using numbers with Isaiah 40 to kind of show God's greatness when it comes to things around us. The oceans of the world contain more than 340 quintillion gallons of water. 340 quintillion gallons of water, yet God holds them in the hollow of his hand. The earth weighs, any guesses? No, just, just kidding. The earth weighs six sextillion metric tons, yet God says it is but dust on the scales. And of course, we've thought more about things like that probably this week with the anniversary of the moon landing. The known universe stretches more than 30 billion light years, which is 200 sextillion miles, but God measures it by the width of his hand. Scientists claim there are at least 100 billion galaxies, and each galaxy is made up of about 100 billion stars. To such mind-boggling math, Isaiah reminds us that God calls each star by name. Isn't God great? What a great God we serve. In fact, this is the God of all creation who brought us salvation and will keep us secure in it as we look forward to the coming of Christ. So we're going to talk about three key things this morning. First, the judgments are not held against you any longer as a believer. Judgments not held against you. Then we're going to talk about God within us. The Holy Spirit resides within you and me as believers. Remember, he's that other comforter that Christ promised them he would send. So the Holy Spirit resides within us. And finally, God the Son is coming back. Christ is returning. Those are the three key things we'll focus on this morning as we look at uh, these verses in Zephaniah. Judgment's not held against us. Look at verses 14 and 15 again. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. Now, you know, in the Old Testament, like we talked about, it was all about pointing towards the Messiah. Not that they totally understood what was going on, but they had a firm belief that the Messiah was coming. 
Now, we see in the New Testament with some of the interactions with them that, that their sense of a Messiah was probably more of a king who would help them governmentally than, uh, than was really going to happen. Those things they would learn, especially after Christ descended and the Holy Spirit was given to them. But Abraham in the Old Testament was saved as he looked ahead to the Messiah and the scripture talks about the faith of Abraham that saved him. In the Old Testament, there was a system of sacrifices that the people in the time of Zephaniah understood well. And the sacrifices, remember, had to take place from time to time, all the time. It was just, they would come back, usually a year later, on the Day of Atonement, for a blood sacrifice that would cover their sins, <clears throat> a year later, back again. So it wasn't a once-for-all thing. Go back to Genesis, in fact, Cain and Abel must have known something about sacrifices, I believe. Yeah, remember, God killed the animals and gave the skins to Adam and Eve. That was the first shedding of blood. And when Cain and Abel brought their sacrifices, one was animal, one was the fruit of the ground, one was acceptable, one was not. So I believe there was some teaching that took place in them because remember, God communicated directly with them back then. So there was some teaching that took place on what was a proper sacrifice. And this was all prior to the time of Leviticus when it was all laid out for them. So they understood and they knew. And when the law came in, it mandated five types of sacrifices. It mandated the burnt sacrifice, the grain sacrifice, sacrifice of well-being, sin sacrifice, and a guilt sacrifice. Now, some of these were more about grains and thankfulness, uh, but a couple of them were all about sin. So if you had a sin you knew about and had to take care of it right away, there was a sacrifice for that. But otherwise, it was annually that people would come and there'd be a sacrifice for their sin. <clears throat> In the New Testament, listen as I read to you from uh, Hebrews chapter 9. Remember, that all changed in the New Testament with Christ. Christ entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? A once-for-all sacrifice of what Christ brought. But those Old Testament sacrifices, we've talked about the Old Testament in the past being a shadow, and it's fulfilled in the New Testament. That's the way the sacrifices were. They set up a system so that people could understand that the sacrifice needed to be pure. It needed to cost them something. Now, you can imagine, <clears throat> I suppose if I were looking at it, depending on how I were doing financially, I might say, you know, maybe I can just substitute this lamb with a little blemish instead of a pure one, because the pure one is worth so much more to me. Uh, that's not what God wanted. He said, here's what I want, and it's going to cost you something. The sacrifice is going to take something from you. In the Old Testament in Leviticus, what they would do is, with the blood sacrifice, they'd come in and they'd lay their hands. The priest would lay his hands on the sacrifice, or the sinner would, signifying that the sin is passing from him, to the sacrificial animal. Aaron talks about the uh, scapegoat on the Day of Atonement 
And that's precisely what they did with a scapegoat. Now, you, you know the term scapegoat is not necessarily a positive one, because it's best if you say, my boss is trying to make me a scapegoat. Okay, he's not looking at that positively. He's, you're saying he's trying to blame me for something I didn't do. But in a sense, that's what the scapegoat is, right? It's, the scapegoat did not sin. You did. And as Aaron put his hands on the scapegoat, he put his hands on the scapegoat for the sin of the entire nation, symbolizing that their sin was passing to this scapegoat, who was then turned out into the wilderness and sent away symbolizing there that there go your sins. Your sins are on the scapegoat, and now they're gone. And come back a year later at Day of Atonement or, or Yom Kippur. Christ's sacrifice, like we've said, covers all of our sins forever. But it's this model of the scapegoat, putting your hands on the sacrifice, and your sins are imparted to that sacrifice, that fits what happened with Christ and his death and resurrection. Let's look at uh, Matthew 25, <clears throat> because the important thing to understand with no more judgments, one of the important things is that uh, that at the final judgment, there'll be a separation of the sheep and the goats. And Matthew 25 says this, Matthew 25, 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, you and me as believers, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry. Now this is important. Follow this too, because it's part of what we do as believers that shows people we are in fact believers. For when I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And what that brings us to, at the conclusion of that, is something that Revelation talks about as the uh, wedding supper of the Lamb. Listen to Revelation 19. This is what we have to look forward to. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride, that's us, has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself, clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Judgments not held against us. 
wedding supper of the Lamb. What an incredible time to look forward to for us. Back a lot of years ago, uh, there was a mayor of New York City called LaGuardia. Now, those of us who fly only know that name with horror because it's an airport that doesn't do very well on the East Coast. But LaGuardia was the mayor of New York City back during the 30s, uh, in the time of Depression and World War II. And he was well known by the people of the city because of his acts of kindness and his deeds of love, because what he would do from time to time is he'd take the orphans from an orphanage, take them to a baseball game. If the uh, newspapers went on strike, he'd read the funnies to the kids over the radio. So he was really looking toward how can I help and be of service to the people. So one night he decided he was going to take over for the judge at night court and be the judge. Before him comes a uh, an old lady, obviously down on her luck, and she's charged with stealing a loaf of bread. And she said, uh, Mayor, my kids are starving. My mother is injured and can't work. I lost my job. I had to have something. So I took it to feed my family. Now the grocer said, you've got to make a symbol of her. It's the law. You've got to do this and punish her no matter what. And the mayor looked at her and said, you know, he's right. You have to pay a penalty. The penalty is $10, which, of course, she didn't have. And as he said that, he reached in his pocket, took out a $10 bill, and gave it to the clerk to pay her penalty. The judgment was not held against her. He paid for her penalty. The judgment's not held against us either. Christ paid our penalty. Through that, God gives us a sign and a seal of his promise of salvation in the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 17 in Zephaniah 3. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult with you, over you with loud singing. The Old Testament model of the tabernacle was that there was a separate place in the tabernacle called the Holy of Holies, and that's where God would meet with the high priest when he went in uh, once a year. That changed with the New Testament and with Christ, because the book of John says what? That Christ came to tabernacle with us. And you remember at the crucifixion what happened at that Holy of Holies and that great that great curtain that was there separating that from the rest of the temple. It tore, yeah, and it tore from top to bottom, symbolizing that that's all changed now, that now we individually as believer priests come before the Lord directly. So through the sacrifice, the death, the resurrection of Christ, that all became different. God the Holy Spirit lives within us as a sign and seal of the changes that God has brought about in our lives. And if it's a seal, it's like we talked about, it's forever. There's nothing you can do that causes God to say, eh, try again, buddy, you're out of here. You're his forever. He holds you in his hand, and if you think he's powerful, then you've got to believe that nothing can take you out of his hand. The role of the Holy Spirit in our lives is different, does different things. Let me give you uh, what I've come up with, and it's 
not a comprehensive list necessarily, but just some things that the Holy Spirit can do and wants to do in our lives. First of all, if you're a believer, regeneration. That's where your salvation comes from. It comes from the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, you didn't all of a sudden say, you may think you all of a sudden one day said, I think I'll become a believer, but it wasn't you who brought that about. It was the Lord through the work of the Holy Spirit brought it about in your life because Scripture is very clear saying you're dead in trespasses and sin. So you couldn't respond. So regeneration in John 3, Jesus answered and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Holy Spirit's a guide. He's a guide. Romans 8. Not that you ask me, but Romans 8 is probably my favorite chapter in the whole Bible. So if you get a chance, look at Romans 8. He's a guide for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Doesn't mean we don't frustrate him sometimes when he's trying to guide us, but, but that's one of his functions, is to guide us. And I like to tell people that it's a great verse in Psalm 119 that talks about how important it is for us to read Scripture, because that's what the Holy Spirit brings to our mind when we most need it. He can keep us from sinning because of what we studied and what we know and move us in the right direction. Not perfectly, because we still sin, don't we? At least I do. But he wants to do that in us. He wants to guide us in those ways. He's a uniter. Acts 2.42, and this is the first, for those of you who are aspiring Greek scholars, this is the first use of the word koinonia in the Bible, which is a word for fellowship, and it's used about 18 times in the New Testament. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayer. So they were united in what they were doing and where they were headed spiritually. He's a comfort. John 14 says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. He helps us recall those things, like I talked about, especially in studying the Scripture. Uh, John 14, But the help of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. He convicts us, doesn't he? Do you ever go through those times when all of a sudden it's like something comes upon you and you realize that what you've been doing is wrong? You may have to confess it. Maybe it hasn't included anybody else, but if it has, you may have to apologize. He convicts. John 16 says, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And then finally, he helps us pray. And this again is Romans 8. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, but we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Isn't that incredible? You've got Christ, who's your advocate, sitting at the right hand of God now, and you've got the Holy Spirit, who if all of a sudden you kind of flounder in prayer, he knows what you need. He takes your requests direct to God. What an incredible thought for you and me as believers. And then I mentioned before in this verse too, I just love this thought of God singing over me. There were probably a lot of times when I wished my earthly father or mother would have sung more over me because there's just something about that, especially when you're younger. Now when you get older, if you're a teenager, if your parents start singing over you when you're with a crowd of your friends, uh, 
It's probably not going to go over well, is it? You're going to be embarrassed. Or I remember this story uh, about a mother who yelled at her son on the football field. He was practicing, Mama loves you. And all of a sudden, uh, but so there are certain times when things like that don't go over as well as they might later. But God will sing over you in verse 17. There's a little boy uh, out in the field. Let me ask this first, though. <clears throat> I'll move away from this, so hopefully you'll figure it out. You don't want to kite it. For those of you who are old, you don't want to kite it. And uh, when I was a kid, I used to have a kite, and it was either a regular kind of a diamond-shaped kite, or we'd try box kites. And you'd put that kite up in the air, and it wouldn't do well, so you'd have to tie a couple rags on it, try it again until you got a tail that was set up just right on that kite. So the boy was out in the field flying his kite and probably did what we used to do. We'd get to the end of the string, grab another ball of string, tie it together, let it out some more. I mean, how high can that thing go? And all of a sudden, there's a guy that walks up and you couldn't see the kite. He said, how do you know the kite's still up there? And the boy looked at him and said, because I can feel it. Because I can feel it. I can feel the Holy Spirit when I take time to listen in my life. I can be guided by him when I take time. I can't see him, but I can feel him. One of the important functions of the Holy Spirit is to point us to Christ, our advocate. Christ himself submitted to the Father. The Holy Spirit comes, and one of his functions is to point us to Christ, our advocate. And it's that Christ who's coming back. Look at verse 20 again in Zephaniah 3. At that time, I will bring you in. At the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the people of the earth. When I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. God is faithful to his promises. I know sometimes I remind myself when I pray, I say, Lord, I know you alone, you alone are faithful to all your promises. I'm not faithful to all my promises. I may promise to do something. It's like the comic I saw the other day of a guy that uh, was arguing with his wife over some of these chores, the interminable list of chores that obviously they have for me to do at home. And he said, you know, you don't have to remind me every six months to do that job, okay? Just let it go. It's been six months, but it'll get done somehow. God is faithful to his promises, though. Unlike us. Remember in uh, 2 Samuel, God promised the throne of David would last forever. And I know I've said this before, but David is one of my favorite characters in the Bible because he was so human. You, you can list the things that he did. He was, a, he was an adulterer. He was a murderer. Had a hugely dysfunctional family. And God says, it's David that I want to focus on. I want to with the throne of David to last forever, in spite of all that. And of course, we go through the uh, confrontation of Nathan with David over his sin and the incredible Psalm 51 of David's confession. That's the type of thing that God's calling from us, is when we sin, we recognize it, we confess. And that was David. So God promised the throne of David would be there forever. So if you look at... Uh, you look at the genealogies, that's what's so incredible to me, is they're a little bit different, 
in the New Testament, but they bring in some people you never would have thought would have been part of the line of Christ. Uh, Rahab, wait a minute. She wasn't a real incredible person. Well, she, she, she was a big help. She's there. If you read the book of Ruth, how neat is it that Boaz and Ruth are there in the line of Christ? And what would have happened? Well, it had to happen the way it did because it's God who has all this mapped out from time past and all of eternity of what's going to happen, what's going to bring about the Messiah, what's going to take place in the death, what's going to take place in the resurrection, what's going to take place in our lives. That was all established before the foundation of the world. The expectation of the Old Testament, like I mentioned, was that Christ would come and be the political figure for them. He would, wrong, he would right all their wrongs as a political figure. So you can imagine how they felt uh, after they took him down from the cross. You know, they went and hid because this wasn't what they expected. They didn't understand what he talked about when he talked about being raised again on the third day. Look at, uh, look at Luke 2, 22 through 35. This is a story that I love because, <clears throat> excuse me, in... With the Jewish people, after eight days of the birth of a male, there was a circumcision that took place. This passage in Luke 2, verses uh, 22 to 35, is all about Simeon. And that was a time, not of circumcision, but that was a time, 40 days after the birth, they would go to the temple, and it'd be a rite of purification. So they were at the temple with the baby for that particular rite, 40 days after the birth. Move ahead to uh, verse 26, and it's talking about Simeon now, who had been there for years at the temple. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he'd seen the Lord's Christ. And can you imagine day in and day out in the temple, waiting for that time that God had told him was going to take place, that thing that he would see? And he came in the spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, Simeon took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared in the presence of all people light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. What an incredible sight for Simeon just a sense that this was the Christ that God had promised. He was able to see him before he died, as God had promised. In Acts, it talks about uh, looking, ahead to the, looking ahead to the Messiah by the Old Testament. In the New Testament, in our times, we look back to the Messiah. What does this all mean for us, though? It means, first and foremost, eternal life. Romans 6.23, eternal life. It means Christ returns as promised. And it's going to be a noisy return according to Scripture. It's going to be trumpets. It's going to be shouts. If we're here, that's what we'll have a sense of taking place, is that Christ is coming back and every knee will bow before him. They didn't before, but they will now. Every knee. And then in Revelation 21, let me read that to you. 
First four verses of Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So those struggles you've got, those pains we feel, those losses that we've gone through, that's gone when Christ comes back. We won't suffer anymore. We won't have any more pain. There won't be any more tears. We'll glory in the presence of the Lord. And all these things will happen for one primary reason. If you look back at Ezekiel, he reminds us that when God does things for us, he does them for his glory. God does things for his glory. He still loves us, but the things that we go through, the things that take place, are to show honor and glory to him as they all happen. The day of the Lord that's coming is a two-pronged day. The day of justice, not met gladly by those who are the goats like we talked about before, but it's also a day of joy for us. The day of the Lord is a day of joy because we can celebrate the return of the Lord. Listen to 2 Peter 3, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire? And dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. There was a prominent uh, Bible college, and some of the men used to get together and play basketball on a school nearby, on an indoor gym. Uh, probably uh, Probably like some of us, you know, they played basketball when they were younger and thought they could do just as well now that they're older. And, and, uh, and if, you, if you've been like me, you've probably been to those things and seen people our age come in to play and they've got, they've got splints around their legs and special pads on their arms and they kind of hobble up and they're going to they're gonna get back to the time of youth. But they played nonetheless at this indoor, uh, indoor gym. And every time they played... There was an old guy who was a janitor who would just sit there and wait for them to be done so he could lock up. And one day, one of the guys walked over to him because he saw him reading, and he realized he was reading a Bible. And he said, what are you reading? So I'm reading the Bible. But what in the Bible are you reading? I'm reading the book of Revelation. And the guy got kind of a quizzical look, and he said, how can you understand Revelation? You know, other people have tried, and it's just complicated. It's difficult to understand. What do you think it means? The old man looked at him and said, I think it means that in the end, Jesus wins. 
Jesus wins. Pray with me, would you? Thank you, Lord, that at the end of our lives, we look forward to eternity with you. We thank you that we know the end of the story. We thank you that you do win. I pray for those here this morning who are without you, that you would impress upon them these words and bring them to faith in you. I pray for those who are already believers, be an encouragement to them today to keep on with those things that they know are right and true in spite of the difficulties that they've faced. Thank you for my brothers and sisters for their encouragement and support to each other and to me. We pray your blessings on this day in Jesus' name. Amen.